gentlemen and otherwise, I would like to welcome you to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. I am your host, Kelly KFM Meyer, and I consider myself lucky that any of you are even here. In January 2020, I began writing a book outlining all the gory mistakes that I had made since my wife and I founded our brewery eight years earlier. The second edition of that book is at 57,000 words and available on Amazon, both in Kindle and paperback formats. Please check it out, pick it up, read it, and share it with a friend. The show is the same name as that book simply because my goal here is to help my guests to experience the same catharsis I did after laying my story out in public, and because I know that the lessons I wrote about were only the tip of an enormous iceberg. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe, like, write a review, share with a friend. Trust me, it all really helps. In this podcast, I will interview people in and around the beer business to uncover the mistakes, the pitfalls, and the hardships that all of us poor souls in the brewing industry have had the misfortune to experience. My guests will autopsy dead and dying breweries, break down the science of brewing, and dissect the art of marketing. I'll talk to distributors, retailers, beer writers, even a fan or two. Hell, I'll shove a mic in front of anyone I think can make you better in your business. This is open and honest conversation packed with emotion and sincerity, and hopefully, a little bit of fucking vulgarity. I want to thank you for joining my guests and I on this journey, and I truly hope together that we are able to teach you and your loved ones how not to start a damn brewery. My guest today is Byron Lewis, who's the co-founder of Altmeyer and Lewis Brewing Company out of San Marcos, Texas. They were a small brewery known for classic styles and solid execution. They never packaged and they never signed with a distributor. And as you'll hear, Byron does have some regrets, but that is not one of them. We're going to get into the logistics of building and managing a brewery and even some of the emotions surrounding his experience tearing it back down. The idea for the brewery came around Christmas of 2012 when Byron's wife's sister's husband called. He said, hey, I got some money and I want to open a brewery. How about you be my partner? And as a home brewer, it was an offer Byron just couldn't pass up. So A&L began making beer as a family partnership in 2015. Since Stuart brought cash to the table, he was 51% owner. And as a sweat equity guy, Byron had. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. 49, he held 51%, um, and rightfully so. He put all the money into it. My, my end was sweat equity. I'm going to work as hard as I can for as long as I can to, to earn my, my share of the business. Name of the brewery, Altmeyer and Lewis Brewing, is... Took some time to figure that one oh, out. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, you say that. <laughs> it did. Uh, we went through... I mean, I had pages of, uh, of potential names, you know, and you, and you think about it and you go, okay, I don't want to be just a regional brewery when you're thinking about long-term. 
Like, you want to do something stupid, like name it after the city? Like New Braunfels Brewing. No. <laughs> yeah. no. And that was a, that was one of them. It was, uh, you know, Hayes County Brewing. There was San Marcos Brewing. There was, I think actually San Marcos might have been taken. for. There's one in San Marcos, California. And, and, you know, the trend, too, looking at some of our compatriots in the brewing industry, looking at, you know, Live Oak Brewing. I'm looking at your cans up here. You know, mm-hmm. Stone Brewing. These are catchy. You know, how, how do we how do we catch something like that? And quite frankly, we just couldn't. <laughs> do you happen to remember like what the least favorite name that you didn't pick was? Oh, or man. your least favorite, I guess. My, you know, I, I, I don't, I should, I still have all those notebooks. I really? should have brought one in and, and just kind of looked at it with you. But we actually had settled on a, a different one prior to Altmeyer and Lewis. It was going to be Windmill Brewing Company. Windmill? Windmill. And we had, so again, being married to sisters, uh, the sister's grandfather had an old windmill on his property in, in Wimberley. And we were going to take that windmill and we were going to put it up at the brewery and it was going to be a you know a landmark and a this and a that. A little icon, yeah. Yeah. And we went and picked up that windmill and it was just a piece of shit. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Not a good omens name no, brewery after it. Yeah. We call it Broken Windmill Brewing Company. <laughs> well, see, that would have been better. Yeah. But anyway, so we went with Altmeyer and Lewis. We put our names on it. And for a long time, you know, and it's kind of ironic at this point, people would say, well, why, you know, why'd you put your name on it? I go, well, if I put my name on it, I can't let it fail. It's right. my baby. Yeah. And now here I sit. Yeah. So we, we started off with that and, and shortened it to A&L Brewing for most of its life, you know, because Altmeyer and Lewis was just a mouthful. How did you decide who's going to make the beer? Obviously, you couldn't both be brewmasters, correct? Well, we we were we yeah. we were for a, a good good amount of time. You know, we both brought recipes into the relationship. So I had my West Coast IPA, and I had a couple other beers that in my notebook, and and he had more straightforward German style. You know, he 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 wanted to focus on lagers and and do you know pilsners and. And then we had collaborative beers that we designed together. We had a, a Bach that we put together that was pretty popular. We had, uh, you know, any number of clean style beers, and some of them just fell into our lap. Some of them we designed together. We had a red ale that, that was popular, I feel like. Starting out, yeah, every brew day, we were there together. Oh, really? Yeah. We were, we, uh, we were very fortunate, especially in, in that area, that um, we were able to focus a lot of the money, a lot of the capital on the equipment. We had we had great equipment. Um, we had a company called Portland Kettle Works build us a 15-barrel brew house, hot liquor tank, cold liquor tank. We had four 15-barrel fermenters and two 30s. We had two 15-barrel brights and one 30-barrel bright. On top of that, we had an IDD keg washer that did everything for us. It was... Push the button and walk away. Push yeah. the button and walk away. It was great, you know. How'd you decide on that uh, cellar structure? Did obviously you guys weren't commercial brewers before? Did you did you go through the flow of here's how many beers I'm gonna need to brew? I'm gonna double batch into the tank, and or or did you have basically the company kind of help you with that decision? Which is what I did. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And Portland Kettle Works was great um, with talking over what we had in mind, kind of, and, and even giving them our building layout, and and they kind of helped design a flow for the brewery. You know, okay, you want to 
mash in over here and then the beer is going to flow through to your fermenters and here's your keg washer filler here's your walk-in cooler here's the all the all your exits you know grain in grain out they were really great about that i think they uh, the guys up there had taken the the course course at uh what is it portland college or something like that they have a yeah a, a good brewing school up there i think as far as the you know so for the 30s we thought pilsners any lager it's going to have an extended stay in your in your tank so let's double batch those and then uh, you know that that gives us more volume that way we can focus the 15s on ales or or quick turnaround beers didn't end up working out that way but that was the idea yeah why not what would end up happening um i don't think we expected the the time it takes to to brew 15 barrels to pitch 15 barrels and let alone 30 barrel runs so we were spending 10 hour days on the brew house just for 15 barrels oh sure obviously coming from a homebrew background <laughs> where you're drunk by four in the afternoon yeah exactly yeah. exactly I, I did a batch this weekend and three o'clock i was making dinner it was <laughs> it was fine but yeah we didn't expect the length of time and and i think that slowed us down and we were just two two people we we, we didn't have staff we didn't have volunteers yet at this point so it was uh daunting to say the least well, that's what we all learn, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. So we talk about some of the styles you've made before. And, and in the book, I talk about one of my biggest mistakes early on was focusing on quality over the marketing and the branding. Mm-hmm. Do you remember all the names of your beers? Oh, yeah. What did you guys call the Bach? A&L Bach. What about the Hefeweizen? Uh, A&L Hefeweizen. So <laughs> I'm curious, and this is a hard question to, to answer, but mm-hmm. do you feel that you could uh, act like, I guess, fairly judge the quality of your beer so on a scale from one to ten where do you think you would put it as far as the quality of a bock yeah no I, I stand by all the products we made i think quality on that bock was it was above a seven uh, it was really good and and we did take the time to focus on the quality to give it all the you know put it through all the tests make sure all the precursors were were left out make sure that it was just the way we wanted it before we put it in a in a keg so I would agree, and uh, I don't always get to interview people whose beer I've had, but uh-huh. I have had your beer, uh, and I think I remember telling you that I don't I don't interview people on the show that are assholes who make shitty beer and ugly packaging. Um, I feel like you guys made great beer, you were nice guys, and it still didn't work, and so that's one of the reasons I'm curious how the story went down. Yeah. So th- there's two schools of thought on this, from what I can tell in the industry for, for the most part, on the naming of the beers. A lot of guys do exactly what you did. And then the other side is pretentious fucks like me who make nine <laughs> different um, words and then each one's a different language and you have no idea what it means unless you read the book that I read at the time that I read it. Uh-huh. So how much do you think um, names make a difference in the mind of the consumer? It's an interesting question. I was thinking about this. <clears throat> you have different breweries throwing up clever names for their beers. How much of that sticks with the consumer? I don't know. I had... Our model kind of, our model, it was an outdated model. We had we were working off of an outdated model for breweries, uh, quite frankly. But we were looking at, you know, say Sierra Nevada. You know, what's their top selling beer? Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And had been for 30 years at that point, pretty it, much. Yeah. Exactly. It's a proven model, you know. But, um, but how much of looking into the future were we doing when it came to naming beers? Because today, yeah, that's still, but that's a classic beer. You, you say Pliny the Elder and people still go, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Which, but that's a clever name for a beer. So right. it's it's a toss. It's not called IPA. It's not called IPA. <laughs> yeah. It, so so the idea for us was was clean style brewing and and straightforward 
marketing. Hey, you want to drink a Hefeweizen? Here's an A&L Hefeweizen. Just call it what it is. And it worked. It worked for us. The only variation on that we had, uh, the Pilsner was called the German Lager. Can't remember why we did that. <laughs> But we did it. So. You said you were fancy that day, basically. I, I guess. Wanted yeah. to pretty it up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think even the TABC had a problem with that because we called it the German lager and not the German style lager. Oh, that's true. It's supposed to have the hyphen in it. Yeah. But you never went to package, so you can kind of get away from that a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, if you start doing label approval on the shelf, yeah. they would have corrected it. <laughs> TTB too, but. Yeah, yeah exactly. But do, did you guys have like a brand message that you were trying to send? Um, when you, you named the beers and you named the brewery. Obviously, your focus was quality um, and making things crisp and clean. Did you sit down and say, hey, we need to make sure that those names um, reflect that and tell that story? Well, I don't know. Again, that's a that's a good question because a lot of this stuff, and again, one thing going back to the founding of the brewery, we're, we're homebrewers. We weren't business people. Neither one of us knew two things about running a business, and, and that's that's a huge downfall. For, for opening a brewery. If you don't know how to run a business and all you're passionate about is the beer, then you better hire some motherfuckers around you that know about running a business <laughs> and don't care about beer because otherwise you're, you're going to be so focused on that beer. And, and, it, and it, there's a there's a pride behind it too. And I'm sure later on we'll talk about it, but I, I want to put my keg in the market at a quality craft price point. A lot of bars and restaurants don't give a shit about your quality product. And unfortunately for me, I found in the town that I was in that a lot of bars didn't care about being local either. Uh, they were, and this is just my personal experience, but they don't want to pay $150 for uh, a 5% keg, you know, half barrel keg. They, they wanted, you know, well, I can get Budweiser for $89 a keg and still make the same amount of money. I can't, you know, looking back now, I get that. And that's when it's hard because a lot of the national brands figured that out. Mm-hmm. So even for us, we make expensive mixed culture beer, mm-hmm. typically large format bottles. I like New Belgium. I like what they do, and they've done a great job of kind of pushing um, what we do to the forefront. But their pricing is almost half of what everybody else's yeah. is for the same product. And it's because obviously it wouldn't move if it wasn't aggressive. Mm-hmm. Somehow they figured out a way to make that profitable, at least enough to sell to a national international conglomerate. <laughs> but uh, you see the same thing here. There's some guys in Texas that... You know, we can name names if you want. It doesn't matter. But there are products similar to what you made that'll be literally $60 less per keg. Yeah. And it's not made as well. It's all two-row and not even good two-row to begin with. Almost no hops. But at the end of the day, it comes in at the price point that the average one. Well, and you're in a college town. The college bar wants to have for, you know, Tuesday, dollar night or whatever. But uh, makes it hard trying to sell a quality product when other people don't care about their quality and they're not proud of what they do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, that bar owner wants to turn a buck too, and and especially in a in a college town, they don't they don't want to pay six dollars a pint. They don't want to pay throwing a, a double IPA on tap and and charging nine dollars a, a a half pour half pour for it is it's not feasible. Yeah, I've seen it done. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't last very long. No, no, exactly. Because that keg sits on the line for four weeks, and they go, we just can't sell it. Yeah, I've had a problem with that for a while, that some of the standards that a lot of bars use is the volume produced by those mega kind of brews. And so that's just not realistic for craft beer in general. You might get a night where somebody does well with your Hefeweizen, but it's never going to move like a light American Pilsner with a $40 billion marketing budget. It just couldn't. <laughs> it, it wouldn't. Like, yeah, we tried. We tried real hard. 
as far as the naming of the beer and the and the style of the beer going ever you know back to that it was i still stand by it i think it was a smart move just to to tell people what it was there was another beer we did uh, it was a, a smash beer which all the brewers know what a smash beer is um <laughs> people in their sophomore year in at texas state they go smash oh well, this is weird and essentially all we did was make a version of the sierra nevada pale ale it was a single malt single hop cascade hops dry hopped it a few times it was really drinkable and people liked it once they tried it but looking at the tap handle they go smash eh, i'll take that bud light it sounds like it's got fruit in it or something i don't <laughs> want that and then as far as our beers being profitable you know in in that scenario they weren't doing lagers having extended stay in the in the tanks doing high gravity double ipa even the bach checked in at eight percent oh really yeah you know the bach i think more than any of them so it had that extended stay in the tank and the grain bill was higher. It's tough to turn a profit on, on stuff like that when it's... And the idea was just to organically build it through time and, and get the process more refined. But Yeah, there's a guy that was early on, we got a little bit of a trademark dispute with another home brewer that wanted to start a brewery. He didn't really have the ability to do that, but he was calling it New Braunfels Pilsner. And so he was we were trying to fight over the New Braunfels name. Mm-hmm. It turns out that an all-Pilsner brewery is not financially viable. No. Um, which is which sucks because it could that would be fucking cool as shit to go to a place <laughs> that only made Pilsners and lagers. And oh, yeah. would be, it would be great, but it's just impossible to do it right, in other words. And there are guys that do um, high-temp diastole rest and these yeah. little games you can play to ferment faster, drop sediment with you know, the, the centrifuge. Obviously, they make the beer taste less fun to drink, but yeah. um, it would work. But someone who did an all, like, six, eight-week lager or brewery, that'd be badass. Yeah, no, that'd be that'd be great. They'd be, they'd be poor as shit, but it'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better have big investors yeah. in deep pockets. You could ask for the tour of the bedroom in the back because they're living <laughs> in that place. Yeah, no shit. So I appreciate you coming down to the tasting room here, and you can take a look around and see mistake two was start small and build. Um, the tasting room is a great example of that. It still is not big enough, but in the beginning, I bought smaller equipment. You know, Building was smaller than I needed. Uh, you guys, I think, didn't have an indoor tap room. Was everything kind of outdoor? More or less. We kind of cleared out a space in front of the cooler that served as three picnic table tap room. Okay. And that was joined with, I think we had five more picnic tables lining the front of the building. So you could you could sit out there. Yeah, very limited on space, for sure. Did you ever have that conversation about, hey, we need more space. What can we do? Yes, we had that conversation several times. Uh, so the building itself uh, was a 3,000 square foot metal building is what we ended up with. You know, I mentioned the the previous, the first plan was to build and that was going to be essentially a bar uh, mm-hmm. in San Marcos uh, where we'd make the beer. It was a brew pub layout. And then after dealing with the city of San Marcos for so long and realizing that we just needed to get something going, we found an old auto shop. Right off 123, halfway between uh, San Marcos and Seguin, converted it. And we had a ton of cleanup to do because it was... Oh, I'm sure. Just, this is greasy and messy. Oh, My was, dad had a mechanic shop for years, and so yeah. I got to go clean his up uh, in the last year. Yeah, it's the amount of shit that gets... Just even the gravel looks like gravel, but all of a sudden there's a million little pieces of yeah. bolts and shit in it. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that was a lot of fun. And, and we had a, a recycling center just a block away from us, so... It was every day for like three weeks. I was carrying scrap metal down to this recycling center. Yeah, wow. Trying to make some money off. Most profitable thing you ever did? Probably, yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'll tell you the most profitable thing. So along with this building, 
the previous owner, to my understanding, was a uh, Cuban national that owned the mechanic shop and lived on the property in a pre-manufactured home on blocks <laughs> in the back lot or in the back corner of the lot. Once we got the building and we came up with plans to to retrofit everything for our needs, our contractor said, well, you know, we'll bring in the, the dozer and just take that building clean off and throw it in the dumpster. And that was fine. Okay, great. I was uh, at work one day and a good friend of mine said, no, man, you can sell that thing. <laughs> and I said, there's no way. I said, you, you haven't seen it. You don't know what it looks like. He said, it don't matter. Them, Someone will buy them, it. Them country yeah. folks will buy it. And I go, okay, all right. And so just on a whim, he said, put it on Craigslist. I put it on Craigslist. I got five hits in a week. And I finally had uh, somebody come out to look at it. And they were serious about buying it. And I think I ended up selling it, not to them, but the guy that was going to move it for them came out and looked at it. Huh. To, to give them a quote on moving it. Once they realized that there was more to it than just throwing it on the ground somewhere, he bought it from us. And I think I got made $4,000 off of what was going to be trash. And Damn. So that was that was a big one for us. Should have uh, run right then. I know. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. We, we made money. Yeah. <laughs> like hitting blackjack on a table max bet. Oh, Get it, the fuck out of there. It, yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> it's it's time to pick up your purse, honey. We're leaving. That's funny. So um, what about the equipment? Did you, did what you picked, did you have good luck with it? Did you ever have any issues with it mechanically? Them serviced? Stuff went wrong? Uh, no, it was a good system. Uh, Portland Cutter Works, uh, they did all of their building in-house. You know, to my understanding, everything was American steel. Um welded in their portland uh plant area it wasn't even a plant it, it was they were pretty much building the equipment in the same space that i was building my brewery it was it was great uh and the guys were great and they were all they always answered the phone anytime there was a problem the only mechanical issues we had were self-induced <laughs> we uh i pulled i pulled a vacuum on my mash time and imploded it once really and you know i was cip and um getting everything going and i closed a valve or something and my pump pulled a vacuum and we just heard a dong and i go what the hell was that and i open up the door and i can see the false bottom is oh pulled the bottom up essentially mm -hmm. and i go oh my god we just you know we just ruined all this equipment what are we going to do what are we going to do so i got on the phone and i called back to portland and they answered the phone like i said they were always there and i said i uh, you know guy's name was joe i said joe I just pulled a vacuum on the mash tun. The bottom popped up. I, you know, I don't, oh my God, I think we just, we, and this was in the first year. And I said, we're screwed. You know, what are we going to do? And he said, it's okay. Relax. He said, do you have a, uh, an attachment for an air hose? I said, yeah. <laughs> he goes, okay. He goes, put that attachment in the arm, close all everything off and just pump air in. Push it back out. And push it back out. And that's what I did. And he goes, yeah, man. He said, don't stress out. Metal has a memory. So just. It'll be fine. And it was ever since then. Boiler issues. We, we, we were a steam-fired 15-barrel brew house, so it was... Boilers are meant to be turned on and left on, mm -hmm. uh, you know. And I had never dealt with a boiler before, and so... And I don't think he had either. We, we just turned it off when we were done with it. And it didn't like that. And so we had some element issues with that. I think we had to replace the uh, controller box on that at least once. But there again, as long as you have the right people, it's easy. You know, our boiler guy came out, looked at the problem, did a couple tests, and goes, "Yep, that's it right there. You fried your box." Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, we, we had good good equipment. I, I was, and that was one one thing I was always thankful for is is having that good equipment and 
sharing it, you know, especially with the smaller places around town. Just as a, for instance, BS Brewing in Seguin, it's, it's a small operation. It's family owned. It's, he doesn't have, you know, a keg washer that can, that can send a keg through a complete cycle in three minutes or whatever it was, whatever my turnaround time was. And so I told him, hey, you know, if I'm running kegs, bring some kegs and we'll wash yours too. And, and that always helped me feel closer to the community, I guess, you know, the brewing community. It's not taking pity on him. I'm not, you know, he can do the job just fine, but let me make it easier for you, you know, if you have time. Shorten the day for him, for sure. Oh, yeah. yeah and Brian's yeah. a good guy. He's, He's a great guy. I actually let Aquabrew do that when they got all their, they started distribu- distributing and they got all their kegs in from, I think one of the rental companies, I don't remember exactly how it worked, but they literally got like a fucking truckload of them. Yeah. And David, the brewer, spent, I want to say three or four days in a row just cleaning kegs the entire day bell to bell um because he got them all clean to begin with and then it was good but i say i let him use it he always brought us beer and so it was like yeah you can use it all you want as you bring us beer yeah cool uh, well the next mistake on my book is uh hire a guy to make beer instead of investing in a fucking brewery you guys got kind of lucky on that one because you had two we had you, two brewers you were uh, you were busting at the seams with brewers um <laughs> and obviously it worked in the beginning to both brew 100 on brew day did that even to the end, did that still work out to kind of have co-managers of the brew program? Um, no. Uh, in the end, I ended up doing outside sales and marketing and marketing events and looking more towards the business side of it. And that wasn't a decision that I was happy with. It, it was. It it's was, not the part of the industry I like, and I enjoy sales, but yeah. not in this industry, I don't. Yeah. So yeah, we had two brewers, and we, you know, we. You know, I, I and at the time I lived right down the street from the brewery. We lived in a little neighborhood in San Marcos and and I could get to the brewery in I think seven minutes or something like that. And so I would I'd get there in the morning. I'd start uh, milling in to our, you know, Chris case. And, and then by the time he got in there, we'd push the button and, and go uh, and, and stay with it. Yeah, that's a, that's a, not a lot of breweries have that anymore. Um, looking around the industry now and, and especially right now, it seems that personnel are lacking uh, all over the place there's there's people there but they're not qualified (laughs) yeah 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 uh there's uh there's my job now you know lets me back into breweries and and talking to brewers and and uh, the lack of qualified personnel in the industry in this area is kind of astonishing and i've been offered jobs along the way yeah i'll Uh, bet yeah yeah it's it's kind of funny because i'm happy with what i'm doing now but you know, there's that little piece of me in the back of my head that says, uh, brew days were great. Let's do that again. Yeah. <laughs> it, it seems like it from this angle. But just give it a few times. Yeah, I know. Maybe you should. Go in and brew and just to help out and be nice. Then you're like, this is why I'm not doing this shit anymore. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, let's take a quick break. And then um, I do actually want to talk about where you are now because uh, you happen to be my first sponsor of the show. We don't <laughs> have two. And so... Uh, Let's take a quick break, and we'll get back and talk about that. Cool. All right, man. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. 
They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. I appreciate you guys sticking with us. Uh, we were going to talk about what Byron's doing now, and I think it's cool that um, our our first uh, sponsor for the podcast was Brewery Direct, um, our local grain supplier, which apparently is not only local anymore. Uh, maybe you can speak more to that, what you do for them, and what, uh, what's going on over Brewery Direct. As a, as a brewery, um, we were introduced to Brewery Direct in 2016, I think, something like that. Uh, and we met uh, Jesse Reyes, who came around and, and said, hey, how you doing? I'm, I've got grain. If you want you want to buy some, I go, okay. And so we... He went by free shipping Jesse back free, then, right? Jesse free shipping Reyes, yes, <laughs> I think. And so uh, we were customers, we, you know, at the brewery. We were customers of Brewery Direct. You know, and, and Jesse was always great. If we needed something and we needed it in a hurry, he'd, he'd take the time to do a hot shot. And just and run us, you know, whatever we needed. So looking, you know, forward to 2018 when A and L Brewing closed, one of the phone calls I made was to Jesse. Hey Jesse, hey, we're going out of business. I need something. Do you guys have any open positions? Is there something I can do to come help? You know, what do you what do you got? And at the time he didn't, and and you know, you can't force things like that, obviously. So I went, backstory on me, after the brewery closed, I went into construction. I was doing uh, construction supervision for a handful of years and then jumped into um, local remodeling with a friend in, uh, in Wimberley. And I wasn't unhappy. You know, that, that's the, the weird part about it all was once I was doing the local stuff and I wasn't far from my home and I was getting to know my town better. That's when Jesse decides he's, he's going to call me then, you know. <laughs> now he's got something for right, you, right? Right as I'm settling in. Yeah, he, he gives me a call. Hey, man, what are you doing? I go, well, here's what I'm doing. He goes, okay, well, uh, there's an account manager position open. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. Well, let's go grab a beer and and go over some details. So anyway, great opportunity for me to get back into the brewing industry, really stretch my legs as far as, as doing something that I'm passionate about. Uh, and I think that's that's something that's pretty unique in, in Brewery Direct is that I'm able to, one of my favorite things about the brewing industry is how we all talked and we all helped each other. If I didn't like your beer, I would tactfully <laughs> say, hey, you know, uh, maybe maybe lighten up on the milling a little bit. I think it's, it's got a little uh, raw grain flavor to it. You know, let's see if that, you know, it's your beer. You do what you want, but but this is what I might do. Or, or you know, hey, maybe a little longer on the diacetyl rest or, you know, whatever. But now with this job, I, I'm not beholden to my own brewery and I get to be friends with all the brewers again, which is really great. And, and we... Yeah, Brewery Direct supplies grain. We have uh, adjuncts. We have plenty of fermentables. We have uh, fruit. That's a popular thing. You know, right now especially, it seems like there's a lot more fruited beers in the market. Well, especially advantageous for a lot of guys doing some of the more creative and off-the-wall stuff that it's an arm of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply. Right. So, so the, anything a bakery would need, you've also got that, essentially? Exactly. So so Johnson Brothers Baking Supply has been, uh, been in business for 20-plus years. Um, still new, so I'm still learning all the history. But like I said, in about 2016, they, they opened the Brewery Direct branch. Uh, the owner, Kevin Johnson, big beer fan, saw that there was a, a spot open in the market, and, and he and Jesse came together and, and opened the doors to Brewery Direct. Uh, yes, exactly. If you want fruits, if you want spices, if you want anything you can think of that a brewery would put or a bakery would put in their in their baking, we have it, and 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 it's 
interesting how imaginative some brewers get. <laughs> that will be nice. And, uh, and oh, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that's a that's a great thing to have on the back in, in your back pocket. Is oh oh you you needed twenty pounds of uh, vanilla bean? Yeah, I got that. Yeah, it's always been surprising when I, I reach out and I'm like I wonder if they'll have it, and you almost always do. So it's yeah. been. I even did an experiment once. Uh, we did a beer that. Uh, was supposed to just be obnoxiously red and the stuff we'd put in it wasn't and so i went you guys have a, a food coloring i don't even know exactly what's in it different but if i use quote-unquote regular food coloring from the grocery store uh, my britannomyces will actually eat whatever it is that uh-huh. makes the color <laughs> but whatever's in there it doesn't huh. so it whatever red was made it through to the end yeah. um so just you know it's just helpful to have more places to find things to make things you want and you guys have a ton of shit in inventory so yeah it's you know i still learning the learning everything that we we can carry is the the, the book is you know an inch thick it's it's insane so people you know hey do you guys have marshmallow powder and i go probably let me <laughs> I got a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know somebody. Um, so yeah, it's it's a great opportunity, and it's been uh, still young. Uh, it's only been uh, I think coming up on two months now, but it's being in the brewing industry without as much of the backbreaking labor. I guess I don't know, or the oppressive risk either in the position you're in. Well, yeah. that's true. <laughs> it is commissioned, but not in the same way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you're able to come back to the industry, and um, I'm glad you get to be the rep that we get to go through to buy our stuff from over there. So well, yeah. we'll definitely look forward to seeing more in the future. So, yeah. but um, with that, let's get back to shitting on beer some more. Good. Um, <clears throat> so mistake four in the book was just brew whatever is popular instead of what is profitable. And, and that's, we, we touched a little bit on how you decided on the beers you make and, and why you made them. And then of course the names that you named them. But um, we talked about, you did the Bach and it was named Bach. You did the Pilsner. It was German lager. Mm-hmm. IPA was IPA. Um, what was the name of your, Cream ale. No cream ale. No, no fucking cream ale. No what, corn. What about your, your pastry stout? What was that uh, called? That was called Never Gonna Do It. <laughs> yeah. So so how did you plan to be profitable in an industry that only wants sweet garbage when you aren't going to make sweet garbage? Yeah, no. Uh, if that was the case, I'm glad we closed. Um, that, that was uh, shocking, I think, to see, you know, once the New England style started to emerge, and all the cloudiness, and I saw all of the garbage that people were putting in their beer. And I just thought, we just won't do that. You know, one of the, one of the, wasn't a tenant of our brewery, but the idea, the, the Reinheitsgebot idea of four basic ingredients, you know, we wanted to stand by that. If we're going to do something that has a cloud in it, it's going to be with wheat. You know, that was the <laughs> Hefeweizen. I'm not, I'm not getting lactose. I'm not getting marshmallow powder. I'm not, you know, these, these things just weren't, weren't in our, plans i still have a hard time drinking hazy beers and i, I don't choose to you like ipas just not hazy ideas I, I like clean ipas man just showcase those hops you know or, or give me a, a good solid malt backbone uh with some hops on the nose it, that's that's always been my style and i don't know if if it's my generation I, you know i, I don't want to play the old man card because i'm not but uh <laughs> i just uh, i just can't chew my beer personally i've always thought that when Brewers try to do so many things that there it's it's sort of strange to think that you would be an expert at making a Belgian triple, but then also an expert at making a bl- a blonde. Sure. Um, if you think about it logically, like you go to a pizza place, you don't expect a fucking hamburger. Like <laughs> most restaurants don't do everything for all people, but for some reason the basic brewery model is we can make all of that. 
And so I think that's cool that you can say, like, maybe I shouldn't be the guy making your pastry stout because <laughs> I don't fucking like them. Um, but if you want a lager, a Bach, you know, uh, even a clean uh, West Coast IPA, dry hopped like a motherfucker, like I'm your dude. Um, I, I wish more breweries would say that, I guess is my point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's what, that's what breweries are doing is they're finding a loop and the, they're finding that spot in the market. You know, uh, recently it's been moving towards seltzers. Look how many breweries are doing seltzers. Do you think that a brewery that's been around for 20 years wants to do a seltzer? I mean, that's not why we got into this business, is it? But but when it when you look at the profit margin on a seltzer, you know, that's the business side coming up. Yeah. Well, especially as you get weakness in your core products and everybody wants something new and there's this wide open market there. You, I, some guys are moving into that for that reason, but sure. not because they won a homebrew award making a seltzer. No. Which is why we got into beer in the beginning. So then did the industry change so fundamentally that... Uh, no one's getting into products because they're good at them anymore, just because they make money. I think that I think that the so in in 2013 when we kind of when I kind of came into the industry, it was all about independence. It was all about craft. Your main focus, a lot of the main focus, was on the quote unquote beer nerds. Let's let's get them hyping up our beer. And I always said that you know that the customers would drive long term what we brewed. Now, that being said, I don't think if a customer had walked up and said, I want a pastry stout, I would have made one. But <clears throat> what about a pastry sour? Have you had one of those? I have not had one of those. You never heard of that yet? No. Is it here in your tap room somewhere? Uh, the answer to that would be a resounding no. Um, <laughs> the day that the only way for me to make money is to sell a pastry sour, I will literally shut the lights off and hand you the keys. You can have it. <laughs> but no, it's a real style and it's uh, really happening. And I can only pray to God that by the time, because there's going to be a little bit of a lag between when we record this and when I post it, like mm -hmm. three weeks. I'm hoping by then it's dead and then <laughs> there is no pastry sour anymore. Oh, it's a new sweeping trend. <laughs> but actually that does bring up one of my favorite questions to ask is, what is your most ridiculous beer prediction? Like, obviously, even since you started 2012 to, to now, it's it turned on its head. That's the best way to say it. Like, the consumer has fundamentally changed what brewers make, and brewers have fundamentally decided, I guess, not to give a shit in general. But uh, where are we going six years from now? What's the next most ridiculous beer? I was thinking about this. I don't, I don't know. So, so another current trend in the market today is making lighter light beers you look at you know it's not new anymore but real ale does their fireman's light there's <laughs> craft beers that are doing there's actually a brewery in houston that got in trouble trademark dispute for naming a beer ultra like last year <laughs> <laughs> and it was basically an ultra it was like a super light yeah yeah corn adjunct but Anyways, please go ahead. I thought that was a funny throw in there. No, yeah, that's I'd, I'd love to know who that is. I'm going to go try it. So if we're all looking towards healthier and lighter beers from our local and craft brewers, you know, what's to say that we don't move forward into, uh, I don't know, the only thing I could I could think of would, would be some sort of like workout-based beer. Antioxidants in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Antioxidants. L-carnitine beer. Try to figure out how to put some protein in there for... It's, it's a weird place, man. And, and, you know, people are getting more imaginative and it only, you know, who, who decided to put gold sprinkles in their beer and, and how did that catch on for a minute? Stuff like that. So it's a strange, strange atmosphere. Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody will admit it anyway. I don't know. There's so much garbage out there that I just, I, I, I don't want to sound like the old guy either, but I do hope it, it, at least the industry can support the guys that are making the quality products that are well-made and that people can enjoy taking home. Because, you know, again, the pastry sour, it's that kind of thing that even if you do like it, 
I promise you, you're not drinking four of them. Like no. You just, you, you can. It's not a sessionable idea, and, and, and you wouldn't want to. Your, your stomach would blow up. Yeah. But mistake five is one that I didn't make, but I tried really hard to make, and you didn't make. <laughs> so talk to me about packaging. You guys never did, correct? No. That's something we talked about, we toyed with, we looked at multiple times. We looked at the mobile canning. We looked at potentially getting a a little two-head bottle filler. We just never progressed to that point, I think, is what happened. Because um, it would have happened. I, I know it would have happened. One of the things that we set out, we are talking about business models and, and the brewery. So San Marcos is a river town. There's lots of people that like to float the river. And we always said, at least, that going into packaging, we'd have to do cans so that we could get our beer floating down the river and and you know trashing up the banks and and <laughs> and everything like that destroying the scenery destroying the scenery exactly no we were all kegs um and all all tap sales restaurants bars and then a little bit out of our place but so you didn't fundamentally make the decision to go draft only you just did draft first and never quite got to the point of packaging exactly because i know there were at the time there were a couple of models um because when you guys opened i think live oak still had not canned correct and 512 had not either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how successful they've been having done it as far as I know they sell a lot of product, but I also know their margins are like a 15th of what it is on draft. So I don't know if that was a good choice in the long run or not. But Well, um, it, you know, I was talking to um, Real Ale recently and all the brewers that I've met in the past two or three months, I, you know, hey, how'd you do during the pandemic? You know, since that's what we're just coming out of. And did you have to, I mean, obviously everyone had to switch over to packaging i mean you can't bars and restaurants are closed you're not selling kegs there you're not you can do crowlers out of your tap room but how far is that going to get you you know real has been packaging for a long time but even still to this day they just call it marketing yeah the margins are so small on that stuff that they just say it's marketing and all our real money comes from uh, bars and restaurants in that sense I, I, I think it worked out for us but i don't know so funny story you you guys, did you try to see what the mobile canning would look like? You had somebody can some of your product once, right? Yeah, uh, actually so a, cu- a couple of times. One of my distributors that you guys met with had a meeting with you, and he goes, they fucking opened cans and had me taste cans, and I want cans, <laughs> but they don't have cans. <laughs> he was super pissed. Oh, good for him. He teased I'm, him. I'm glad he was telling us how to run our business. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, so every time there was a festival or a GABF or Best of Craft Beer Awards or, you know, any of those competition would come up, we would take a couple of kegs up to American Canning in Austin. And those guys at the time were just starting out. They were they're wildly successful now from my understanding. But, they're huge, yeah. Yeah. But they were always great to us and they would can our beer off the keg on their line in the in the office there. And so, yeah, I'd have unlabeled cans hanging out in the brewery and people would come by, oh, here, try this. And they go, how come I can't buy this? Yeah. And I go, well, there's a couple of reasons. But yeah, the, I think the, the biggest reason for that, um, and I think it's changed now, but at the time, at least by my understanding, logistically to have cans, you had to buy like a truckload of cans to have printed cans. Um, and and they, the market was just starting to move into shrink wrap cans. And, and then even in some cases, just now I, we're doing labels on cans in, in some breweries. A lot of guys have been really successful with that. It works well. But when they first started doing it, everyone was like, oh, this is stupid. Why yeah. would you do that? No, I remember. So it, it was uncomfortable at the time. But I, I know Five Stones here in town, they, they label everything. Uh, and it looks cool. They do a good job with it. 
Yeah, I think as long as you have a good label, if it, if it's a sticker on a can, I think you can get away with it as long as it looks good. So yeah, that that was just starting to emerge. But but when we first started looking at canning, it was you had to buy a shipping container full of cans, and we had no place for that. Or money. Or, mo- or money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually interviewed a guy from. He was an investor in Audacity in the beginning. He said that was one of the things that was the nail in their coffin. That they had either it was three or four core beers, and they needed a truckload of each, and so they bought a truckload of each and just had a shit ton of cans. It was like a hundred grand wrapped up in cans that, yeah. you know, when as soon as demand dipped a little bit, now you're in deep shit. But what are you gonna do? You can't monetize that, and so you can't use it to pay rent. Like so. Yeah, how many five cents per can recycling maybe? Not yeah, even, right. Uh, dump back it up and dump it in. Yeah. <laughs> well, so um, mistake six was if you fuck up, don't dump it. I got a feeling that this is an area that I want to talk to you about because you are a quality guy. We're and are a quality guy, so you had to have something had to have gone wrong. Tell me a story about something that went wrong on a brew day and you made something you couldn't or wouldn't sell. Absolutely, I, I have I have two sides to this story. So. The first side is that we were doing a collab. It was the first collab that we had ever done. It was, you know. With another brewery? With another brewery. um, And and I don't mind naming the brewery. It was Southerly uh, down in San Antonio. With Les? With Les, yeah, at the time. He's not there anymore. So we come in. We have a brew day. We're we're rocking and rolling. We're having fun. We're all hanging out and drinking while we're. Anyway, we, we get to knock out and transfer and realize that they didn't bring their yeast brink. (laughs) <laughs> so we have nothing to pitch this with so i think it was less i think he jumped in his uh his jeep at the time and went down grabbed their their yeast container and and just brought, probably what an hour from you guys maybe not quite 45 uh, minutes yeah it's about an hour yeah about an hour um then he shows back up and, and by that time we'd gotten into the double ipas we'd gotten it i think we even got into a bottle of whiskey or something i don't know so we go ahead and transfer this stuff over pitch it and it starts going to town. Great. Can't wait for it to come out. He's advertising it in his brew pub. You know, I'm, I think I called the local paper and said, yeah, we got this, you know, whatever. And uh, about five days in, I noticed that the fermentation hasn't slowed a bit. And it's just going crazy. What was the style of beer? So, less. <laughs> Liked. He doesn't like to do styles, so in general. But. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so we actually, Les was great to us when we first started out. They uh, they would put our beer in their tap room, and, and, and anybody knows it knows Southerly in the old Pearl facility. They do volumes uh, over the counter there, and especially when it first opened. But one of the big sellers for us at that facility was uh, our Red Ale. They even had a you know they put a little write up in their menu. It was great. I felt I felt important. Yeah. You know? And so Les wanted to collab on the Red Ale. I think he really just wanted my grain bill, but uh, <laughs> uh, I said, okay, we'll do that one, and, and then we'll alter it. You know, you, you, you guys take the hops and the yeast, and we'll, we'll see what we come up with. Yeah, anyway, five days in, this thing is going crazy, and I pull a slide, I put it under the microscope, and it's covered up in bacteria, and I go, oh, shit. <laughs> we, we, I think both sides, we'd both been hyping it. It, it was kind of devastating. I had to make that phone call to Les and tell him, Hey, you know, I don't, I don't know where it came from. I'm not going to put any blame on you and your late yeast, but, <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we've got bacteria here. This beer is trash. And, uh, I think we held it for another week to see if we could play with it, see if we could do anything at all. And it was just done. And that's the one I dumped. Did it taste weird too? No, oh, it tasted terrible. Yeah. It was, it was uh, yeah, it was just bad. <laughs> so I dumped that one. The second story I have about this, it's on us, 
So with doing our German lager, our Pilsner brand, we double batched, you know, I said it took us a while to get around to double batching and, and getting, because that, I mean, that was a 16, 18 hour brew day. Double batched into our 30 barrel fermenter. It's a lot of beer. It's a lot of beer and it takes a lot of yeast and we didn't buy enough yeast. So we underpitched it uh, and I can't say how far off we got, but. But we definitely had that stressed yeast. We had that burnt tire. We had yeah. That. You gotta have a shitload of lager. That was one thing that surprised the hell out of me. That yeah. when I I only did a, a lager twice, and both times I had to buy fresh yeast, and I was like, how much is it? It's like, yeah. yeah, we only used like I was a liter and a half, or not even, I think, to do a fifteen pitchable on some of our hefeweizens. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, that's that's uh, that's what we found out is that you know if you're doing a fifteen barrel run, you need like twenty barrels to pitch. It's you know a twenty barrel pitch. So anyway, that one thirty barrels of beer sitting in the fermenter, tasting like burnt tire. I'm not putting it in the market. My partner agreed. You know that's not going. That's not going on the shelves or in you know in the tap rooms. So nobody tried to argue that you should. No, which is good. No. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But the question still remains. 30 barrels of beer sitting there doing nothing. And it took us five months to make a decision on what to do with it. Did you drink it? Uh-uh. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what we did. So, and, and here again, going back to Brewery Direct, I even called Jesse and I was like, hey man, I don't know what to do with this. I, I don't, I don't want to dump this. This is a lot of money going down the drain. And I'm sure you can claim insurance and do all that, but I'd rather not. And he suggested fruiting it. Well, obviously going back to our business model, that's not that's not in there. Right. We don't do fruits. Uh, we didn't do fruits. The only fruit in this building is me. That's Wait. right. <laughs> <laughs> only on Sundays. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh, so Jesse suggested fruiting it, and he brought out a sample of some blood orange puree or something, and and we tested. I think it was Amaretti blood orange. Tested it, and it, it kind of covered it up a little bit, but we, we we just weren't happy about it. You know, we we didn't want to do it, and so. We sit on that idea for another two weeks. The beer's still in the tank, <laughs> just just soaking up money. Lagered the shit out of this thing. Oh man, yeah, it was it was dry. And then I don't remember where it came from, but we ended up buying over a pound per barrel of Citra hops and just dry hop the holy shit out of it. And that did it. And that did it. And it covered it up and launched a new brand for us called IPL. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It covered it up just long enough so that people couldn't taste that burnt tire. I actually got good feedback on it. It was. It was so strange because well, a beer like that, it maybe even added a little level of complexity that sure. it wasn't so super clean that it gave it. Because there's so much going on with Citra too. It's not a one note hop. Sure. Yeah, maybe that actually helped it. Yeah. No, I, I. I think it did. It saved. It saved our ass on that for sure. So that was one of those, you know, we waited too long. Maybe if we'd have had that in our back pocket to start with, we wouldn't have had to sit on it for five or six months, whatever it was. So you ended up selling it all? Yeah. That's good. Yeah, we got good. it all out of there, surprisingly. So, and then obviously you learned from the mistake that what, what your pitchable is supposed to be, and so you didn't have that same mistake again. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, so mistake seven is going to be one of your favorites also, since you use that. I think every distributor in Texas was your distributor at one point. I'm just kidding. You guys never had one, right? Never had one. So you self-distributed from the beginning, mm-hmm. which meant who delivered? I know obviously towards the end you were sales guy, but who delivered early on? Yeah, early on we we took turns. We'd uh, go catch an account. If they were interested. We'd load it up in the truck and take it down the road. Did you have an A&L van at this time or was it your own truck? No. So we were still navigating the rules of TABC. We didn't fully understand them. Come to find out you can't deliver beer in your own truck. And at the time, I didn't have a truck. I, I had sold my 
previous truck and I had a, a little Honda Civic, you know, half barrel kegs don't fit in there very well. I've seen it done, but yeah, not yeah, very well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We kind of set out to look for a delivery vehicle of some sort, and I don't know why we did it, but we bought a 1990 Ford F-150 with a Ford 300 six-cylinder motor in it. Great truck in 1990. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> $1,500, I think, we paid for this thing and took it on down the road. I think within the first two months... We had to replace the clutch and fix some transmission problems. The seats were trash, and we found a local guy to, to do the seats. It, it was... I think we're skipping the most interesting part of the story, which is how the fuck you got a half barrel up in the bed of the truck by yourself. Ah, just brute strength. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was... I, I had a system down eventually. Turn the keg on its side, just deadlift the son of a bitch, and uh-huh. put it up there on the tailgate. The second problem we found was that... If you want to take, so, you know, once we started picking up a little bit, we'd take four, five, six kegs, you know, to San Antonio on a delivery run. And that back end was just dragging the whole way. It looked looked like I had a a pallet of concrete in the back of it. So then I had to buy uh, some airbag suspension (laughs) for this 1990 Ford F-150. Yeah, it was a good truck. It was uh, just unconventional and not, not a smart decision. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I, I would say most of us have been there at one point. I delivered in the back of my uh, four-door Lincoln um, at one point as Classy. well. <laughs> uh, and and I was pretty sure you weren't supposed to do it with TABC's rules. I just didn't give a fuck, but um, I wouldn't claim ignorance on that one. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I, well, I'm still claiming ignorance. I didn't know. <laughs> you go right ahead. <laughs> well, so uh, you met with distributors. We talked about that. Uh, at least one. Do you remember how many you met with? Did you... Uh, I want to say over the course of the business, it was three. I know we met with, what were they called? Hops and Vines, mm-hmm. I think. And there was another one that was out of Austin that, and I, God, I can't remember. I wish I could remember the name because I'd blast them. But this dude came in. He was cock strong. Oh, yeah, no, you guys, well, we can fix you right up. We'll work on your price points. We'll work on your packaging. We'll work on this. We'll work on that. That would, that would be Sean O'Connor. I think maybe that's the only guy it could be. Okay, <laughs> that's got to be him then. Um, Austin Specialty at the time. Austin, they're specialty. now Dynamo. Yeah, that's what it was. Okay, so they're still out there. He came in and just wanted to tell us how to run our business. Essentially, we'll get you into cans. We'll work on your packaging. We'll work on your labeling. We're going to Texify your brand, motherfucker. We're the only ones with Texas in our logo. <laughs> it was in the logo. And, and I was, you know, I, I did all the, um, all the uh, artwork for, you know, from our logo to our keg collars to our, you know, we did have label approval on cans, uh, just never used them. I think I remember you sharing that or something, maybe on, I thought I saw some pictures of them, but. Yeah, I think when we would get the label approval, we'd put it on the Facebook page or something. Uh, so, yeah, he came in and we're going to textify your brand and this, that, and the other. And I go, yeah. And when he left, you know, both of us just kind of rolled our eyes and went, okay, next. You know, this guy doesn't seem to have our best intentions. And quite frankly, we didn't want to be distributed. We we heard mm-hmm. a lot of horror stories. And I don't know if it's changed now. I think it's gotten worse, actually. Has it? Well, maybe. <laughs> uh, contracts for distribu- distribution at that the is, time? That has not changed. Yeah, okay. So, you know, and, and that and if the distributor has control over my brand in the marketplace that that's taking one more 
thing out of my pocket. Could be good, could take one thing off my plate, but it also could ruin me. You know, if if they decide that that we're not that important to them, I, I don't know. We we didn't like we didn't love the idea, especially being still young in the business. And so, but we took these interviews, uh, and, and this gentleman that you mentioned just wanted to texan up our brand and get us on the shelf and this, that, and the other. And and I think it was a week later, one of their brands, and I, I'm drawing a blank again, but one of their brands, because he, he mentioned all of his brands that he carried, one of his brands was on the shelf with just this big, bold Texas flag wrapped up. You couldn't even tell who made the damn beer. It just, oh, it's Texas. I understand marketing. I know that that would sell, you know, and especially to a non-craft drinker that might just be happening to look at the, the craft shelf. But that, that that wasn't what we were doing then. That and, and and again, he came in just cocksure that he was going to save our, you know, and not even save because we weren't at that point. We weren't. We were still doing our thing, you know. But I heard horror stories from from you. I heard horror stories from other breweries in the area, and just like, oh yeah, they they picked up my brand and then they sold my brand to another distributor, and that distributor doesn't even know who I am, and then you know, back and forth and. You know, at that time, and, and we still had we still had some momentum. We just decided to let them all walk. Well, I would just to clarify, most people don't like Sean, but he <laughs> does know what the fuck he's talking about, unfortunately. And when it comes to branding on the shelf, that's where he tends to excel. And so that um, now that I think about it, that beer, might have been Native Texan from Independence. Oh, really? Yeah, and that's, that that is dynamically Texas. That's yeah, all it says. Yeah. Absolutely, but. It's selling. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not disagreeing that he knows what he's talking about. I just, his brashness and was off-putting. Yeah. Well, it wasn't <laughs> what you were looking for, right? It, right. Was, it wasn't going to be a partnership that you guys would be comfortable with on either side. He would have been frustrated at your lack of wanting to move as quickly as he did. And you guys would be frustrated that he wasn't giving a shit about the quality of the product. So yeah. at the end of the day, it's it's tough enough to find a match as it is. But that was clearly not going to be a good that one wasn't, for That wasn't the one, no. The guys from Hops and Vine, I'm trying to think his name was Tristan or something like that. Yeah. He was, um, he seemed like he was more willing to work and I don't know what the status of their company is right now, but, but there again, it was, it didn't feel like it, it fit all the way around. And quite frankly, I don't know what would have fit for us at that time. I don't know that there would have been a particular distributor to come in and say, you guys are doing great. <laughs> well, I mean, that would be an important question to ask. So looking back, do you feel like not going with the distributor was still the best plan or do you think that that maybe would have been one of the things that contributed to your uh, still being in business and maybe being successful had you done it now at that time that was the best plan down the road obviously we would have gone in with a distributor we were already you know by the end of the by the end of the business i i think i was managing 60 or 75 accounts all draft sales run ragged from san antonio to just south of austin and then east to west as well it, it would have been inevitable i think but it could be wrong you know that maybe we just hired sales staff and delivery people and, and gone about it that way there's a lot of breweries that have been successful doing self-distribution but it sure. definitely it's a business unto itself as i guess one of the challenges for yeah. it that people like like you mentioned earlier you, you you know how to make beer you're good at making beer but what the fuck do you know about running trucks and managing salespeople and yeah. setting goals and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's a whole different learning curve at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I personally think it was probably the best play for you, but, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll never know for sure. We'll right. Never know. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's take another quick break. And then I want to ask you a little bit about the tasting room and then a couple of other questions and, uh, we'll be back in a second. 
Cool. Remember when you had to buy film for your camera, take pictures you couldn't see or edit, and then pay someone to take two weeks to develop them into pictures? Well, there wasn't a better way then, but there is a better way now. Are you literally still measuring final gravity with a hydrometer like some furry caveman? Dude, you need to get AccuBrew. You'll find real-time feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. And the thing will alert you anywhere in the world when any of them are out of your spec. I'm tired of telling you to make better beer, so go install AccuBrew and make me shut up. Seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and even I will thank you. All right, welcome back. Uh, it's our last segment. I'm already feeling like I'm going to miss you. All right, <laughs> let's, let's have some fun. So uh, the eighth mistake that I felt like I made in the book was, I actually, that's, that's backtrack. The eighth mistake that I absolutely made that I put <laughs> in the book was uh, build a small intimate tap room. And we touched on that. You guys only had three tables inside, a few outside. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a big part of what you're seeing now is the successful brewery model is, uh, not only more inside air conditioned seating, but you know food, music, um, you know ancillary products, whatever it takes to make that a, a more of an experience. So um, we, we touched your tap room was essentially the ten by ten kind of. <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, maybe maybe a little bit bigger, but but not not by much. It was uh, so again we had our walk in cooler and. We put some taps through the wall, and we built a uh, a bar out of pallet wood, <laughs> which I was proud of. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think we could get three tables inside, and then the farthest table you're sitting next to the air compressor, and then on the other side of it you were sitting next to the bulk CO2, and and then the tables outside. The biggest issue, and and this is something that we we tried to work on, but uh, we we were a 3,000 square foot building with a half acre lot. We were tiny. When people, I think, I think the most cars we ever had in the parking lot was 15, uh, and that was kind of dangerous, you know, because <laughs> especially <laughs> as they're drinking. Yeah, yeah, everyone's drinking, and then you you go outside, and you know, or somebody pulls in, and they maybe don't hit the brakes quick enough. I, there's so many scenarios that run through my head that um, you know it just wasn't a big enough lot. Now we tried to work on this because the lot next to us i think was an acre and then on the other side of us we had like a uh, like a farm style you know lot that was 10 acres plus and so we we had met with that owner on the big lot and talked to him about either renting or buying or you know using the unused it, what they weren't farming anything it was just unused space but he was an older gentleman and he was hesitant not even hesitant he straight up called me a liar you know, wow he, yeah he said well you guys are just gonna drag people out here and get them drunk and then put them back on the highway and i go no 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 that's not like that that's not our that and it wasn't that wasn't our model Again, in 2013, we were working off an old model where production breweries, which we were for some reason, production breweries couldn't sell beer from the taps. Uh, in to tw- go, right? In 2012, yeah. Oh, no, from the taps. Right, okay. That was still the, yes. the tour model where You're, it's 15 bucks for the tour to keep the glass and get them filled a couple times. That's it. Yeah, uh, we were working on that model. And so, you know, I tried to tell him that. No, 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 you, you're just going to have people out here. You're going you're gonna to get people killed. And I said, you know, I got mad and I had to walk away from that conversation. But so that land was out. Well, the land behind us, the one acre lot, we actually did establish a good relationship with them. And on occasion, we could use their lot for parking, you know, with permission, obviously asking them beforehand. But that 
lot was undeveloped. It was kind of low land, so it would get a little swampy in there. It really wasn't, you know, long term, if we, we had wanted to do that, we would have, we were trying to buy them out of that lot essentially, and they just wouldn't go for it. The biggest hindrance to our tap room was just the space that we had to put people. You know, it worked for a little while, and it worked on a medium to slow Sunday, or not Sunday, but Saturday. We'd get eight or nine cars in there at the peak hour, and, you know, they'd sit down and have a couple of beers, and that was fine. On, on big events, it, it, got, it got a little more crazy. We had a metal show out at the brewery <laughs> one night, one of the best nights we ever had. Aside from our grand opening, that metal night was packed. Really, <laughs> it, was, it was packed. It was it was fun. But yeah, we had people walking up and down Highway 123, like parking their cars on the side of the road. There's cars driving past us at 65 miles an hour, if not more. Oh uh, yeah, right. It's yeah. kind of a big highway or like a rural highway, but still, it, it's rural. Yeah, but so that was definitely a consideration. That was that was a worry. We didn't have a kitchen. We didn't want to deal with all that licensure and, and nonsense. You know, nonsense to me because I have no kitchen background to begin with. But we do the we do the food trucks. You know, that was the best model at the time for us. And you know, every time we'd get a food truck out, we'd try to make sure that there was some sort of event. We had built a little stage so we could have musicians out there. And yeah, the, when the food trucks would come out, we'd make sure that they made their money. You know, they don't want to come out there and burn capital. <laughs> Um, they usually don't. Yeah. No. They well, if they do, <laughs> they won't ever come back again. That's that's what I found out. So yeah, that was our that was our tap room situation, and I think we'd be open Fridays and Saturday nights, and whoever showed up showed up. So one of the things I made the argument in the book is that your tasting room really needs to operate like a bar and be profitable as a bar. Do you feel like you guys had left some money on the table with how that tasting room was managed, as far as like? Was it contributing to the profit, or were there some things you could have done differently to make it do that? Yeah, I think um, being more consistent with it. I mean, there were nights I remember, like, just not opening it. We'd maybe open the door and see one car come in. They'd come in, try a beer, and then back out they go. And, you know, if nothing was happening, we'd just shut the door. Mm -hmm. There's no point. We both both had families, you know, places to be. I thought I remembered hearing that from customers, and I wasn't sure, so I wasn't going to bring it up, but that it wasn't always open and yeah. you kind of had to go look on Facebook to see when, when it was and when it wasn't. Yeah, it was very inconsistent. So, you know, as far as, as far as being profitable, I mean, overall, I'd say probably not. We, we'd put the beer on the, you know, we'd, we'd sell the beer at, at a pretty low rate. You know, we weren't, we weren't trying to gouge anybody at the tap room. We definitely didn't run it like a bar. We ran it more like a like a marketing event, more like hospitality, just mm-hmm. <clears throat> developing relationships with customers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, come out, try the beer, look at the big shiny tanks, and enjoy your time. Put music on. And found out that that's a big racket too. I didn't know about that. <laughs> oh my goodness! I had to pay for three different licenses just to play one song from the '90s. But so we 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 tried, but we didn't try in that aspect. You know what I mean? Uh, we had. T-shirts and stickers and hats and pint glasses that you could all take home. Um, and again, at the time, so the beer law had just changed to that you could sell pints on premise. You know, it was like thirteen or fifteen, or I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was thirteen. Like, yeah. You know, we should have changed our model based on that. Um, but we didn't. We kind of still stuck to that whole, uh, you know, nickel token for the tour type thing. But now we could just sell somebody a pint if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. That, that was kind of a weird one. That To me, brewing is a hobby, but business is business. You know, I, you know, I still homebrew in my garage and, and I still enjoy the process of it and trying to figure out what I can come up with. But you really need to look at the bottom line if you want to do something like that. If you want to... It, Let I, the numbers guide you. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. So that was my tap room. It was, it was more. <laughs> it was more just a hangout. <laughs> Fun place to share your beer with friends. Yeah, exactly. You know, it became that friendly atmosphere, and by the end of the night, I'd be going one for one with the customers on drinking the beer, and it yeah. made for interesting conversation, at least. <laughs> well, I think a lot of us had that issue, particularly in the beginning, that. Um, even when I would go sell beer and, and ride along with my distributors, it was kind of a day to party. Like it was, yeah. I mean, and it's part of why we're in the industry and why we wanted to open a brewery. But yeah, at some point you're like, I can't sustain this for one. I've got to go home. I've got two kids and a wife. I want to keep loving me. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we have to kind of change. Now a lot of times when I order to taste for you, I don't drink at all, yeah. um, which works better for me. I, I'm not very good at having one or two. I either have uh, nine or zero, and yeah. so zero is better. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, my daughter, who was at the time probably four or five, called me outright an alcoholic. Mm, they do that at that age, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, and she didn't fully understand what that meant, and, and oh, it stung. And I was like, all right, all right, daddy's going to clean up a little bit here. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the first time my daughter was like, are you drinking and driving? I went, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going yeah. right down the road. We're fine. Yeah, everyone in Texas does it. It's Texas, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. The next one was mistake nine was give every fuck you have about online beer reviews. And I think I have made it very clear to anyone who will listen that I cannot stand online reviews in general, but online beer reviews seem to be the stupidest of the stupid. <laughs> and I, I actually have two I want to read to you. Oh, good. Um, of yours. And so I, I thought it would be kind of fun. So one was the Smash version one. Mm-hmm. This uh, guy says, odd brew. I'm getting a lot of lemon for some reason. Three out of five stars. Three out of five. Three and a half out of five stars, okay. actually. So it's about not a bad <laughs> score. And wouldn't there? What was the hops? I assume it was something tropical that would have a lemon note to it because it was Cascade. <laughs> 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 so, but this asshole gets to say it's odd and not that great uh-huh. um, because it tastes the way you made it. So, well, there you. and I told you about that beer. That was practically a clone of Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Which would be tropical, <laughs> and, yeah. And then you got another one that's a Afron. I don't know what the hell that is. The German lager says, not a bad lager. Coming from me says a lot. Don't care about this style of beer, but taste old school Coors 15 years ago with 3.75. I don't even know what the fuck he's trying to say. What the fact that? that he gave it almost a four means he's trying to say it's not bad. But I don't even know if he knows what he's trying to say. Well, and I like the part, coming from me. You <laughs> That's know, the, clearly the <laughs> You are the authority, sir. Oh, man. Those, those days. I'm glad those days are gone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> did you guys uh, spend a lot of time paying attention to what was going on with Untapped? I know we, most of us did, but... We, we started to. Um, and, and to be fair, I don't think Untapped was totally brutal to us. And when... I'd, I could probably pull it up somewhere, but if we would get a scathing review on a beer... I could go back to that beer and go, eh, maybe that's maybe it's been in the keg too long or something. You know, we had dropout in the hef, uh, oh yeah, and so we'd get you know muddy. I don't know why is this beer so muddy. Well, it's protein dropout. Sorry about that. You know, pull the handle, it'll mm-hmm. go away. <laughs> well, and hef is supposed to have yeast and suspension, which can come out. So yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, and I saw I I in that instance I actually did go back to the bar and look at it, and I go, oh. Let me change that keg for you. We would look at the untapped ratings. We would, more of our attention was focused on the ratings on like Facebook, 
you know, for the brewery page. And then uh, what was the other one? Oh, Google. Yeah. I tried to find Google, but they had taken the listing down. So thank couldn't, God. Couldn't Finally. get any good ones from I'm there. I'm still getting phone calls. Are you guys still open? No, dude. <laughs> anyway, so we would pay more attention to that. And that's where it got. So if you're on Untapped and you're rating somebody's beer, whether you believe yourself to be an authority or not, you've at least downloaded an app on your phone dealing with craft beer. Mm-hmm. So you're, maybe you're in more of a headspace than your average consumer. You're part of the journey we're all on at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Facebook, however. <laughs> Conversely. Everybody had Facebook. Every, you know, and we did a ton of marketing on Facebook. It, that, that's, assuming that's still how you do it, I don't know. But that's how we did it then. We would get the most random-ass comments on that. And we had, in particular, one guy three times atmosphere was great really liked the beer but it's not cold enough but he would he would give you a rating again he would rate the brewery <laughs> three times and each time beer's not cold enough and i finally messaged him like what do you mean what are you talking about and why did you do this three times you know because yeah. and it, well you know the beer's just not cold enough i said we set our temperature exactly where we want it it's at 36 degrees or something like that's where we want it so that once we come through the taps you know we don't want ice cold beer if you want ice cold beer there's a texaco up the street go get a coors light but this guy three different times and started we were focused on checking that you know making sure that we were you know five star rating or whatever and at the end i just didn't give a shit it was (laughs) okay you clearly know what you're talking about beer's not cold enough it's hard not to care again i use the example in the book of untapped but you guys were rated 3.75 um, overall as a brewery hmm. and as I looked through and I did not do this scientifically because I don't have the time I apologize but <laughs> as I looked through I did I saw more ratings higher than that than than I would expect for that rating so it, to me there's some sort of qualifier that untapped uses to aggregate things together and I don't know what that is or whatever but overall mm-hmm. I think you guys made better than 3.75 beer in my opinion but it doesn't matter a, a retailer I've actually had go look at untapped before deciding to buy my beer and saying why is it rated this one of my favorites was a guy who looked at a beer i hadn't released yet and said why don't you have any ratings i just fucking told you it comes out <laughs> next week what do you want me to oh, do? yeah well and that's so that's something i never faced i never had a bar owner or a restaurant owner check my ratings that's that's new that sucks well, for a while, I was using Beer Advocate has mm-hmm. shelf talkers, and they would put your rating on the shelf talker mm-hmm. for that for you. And uh, because Beer Advocate required a little bit of headspace, uh, those were actually better ratings. So I would use those <laughs> fuck untapped, and I would talk about Beer Advocate. But now nobody uses Beer Advocate anymore, and so there's there's that. But yeah, yeah, it's a digital age, man. That's what we're doing, and and that was again, ironically, something that I said when I was running the brewery was if I weren't running a business there is no chance i would be on any of these fucking sites i hate this i hate yeah. social media i hate people with there look there's people out there that do have a good opinion and they can go on and rate the beers let me ask you how many brewers you know that go on and rate beers they almost none of us will put a number down because yeah. we all hate it too yeah, yeah. It, it sucks and so you know once we did close the doors once we did close the business everything i had just gone no facebook no instagram no this no that and now being with brewery direct i put instagram back on back on the map again i had to i put it back on the phone but under my account i only follow breweries just to see what everyone's doing i have no pictures on my profile (laughs) and i think all it says is b lewis that's it if you don't know you don't know you don't know you don't know yeah (laughs) 
So, yeah, that's just my opinion on that. The one thing I will say is I think those sites give people an opportunity to connect with each other. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's a social aspect of untap to people who toast each other, even though they're in different cities or not able to go to the bar together. So there can be some constructive parts of it, but overall, I think it just sort of lays bare the, the grossness of a lot of people's <laughs> basic... Yeah. Uh, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Anyway, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's skip to mistake 10. All right. Uh, which I don't think will be much better, but it's uh, <laughs> don't figure out how to manage cash flow. And I use a bunch of examples in the book of how I fucked this up. Um, and it just it's one of those things in this industry that people talk about. It's a capital-intensive industry, mm-hmm. which I personally believe to be a translation to say that it's almost impossible to make any actual money. So talk to me about how your cash flow went. I mean, obviously, there had to been some struggles. So Sure, sure. Uh, so that dividing lines between partnership he altmeyer brought all the cash to the to the party you know he's the one that you know and and we signed uh legal forms saying how much we'd spent and and how the company wants the payment structure back to him essentially but it was all there on the up and up as far as day-to-day cash i didn't and and that's something maybe maybe i should have been more involved in but i let him handle it sure um well i think you can decide for yourself how it would work better for you. For me and my business, um, I think it actually works better to have one person handle that and not, because you'll fight over it otherwise. But there's almost no way. Yeah, yeah, I, well. You can set a budget together that someone else is gonna have to manage. Uh, yeah, I think maybe that would have been it, just, just kind of having that budget. Uh, my notes on here, uh, again, fortunate, I think, for the stretch that we did run the brewery. If we needed material, we'd order material. Grains, hops, yeast, if we needed it, we'd, we'd order it. And I let him figure out more or less how to pay for it, I guess. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. in hindsight, I think if I had been more in tune with some of that stuff, who knows? But no, that wasn't my area. I was marketing and sales and deliveries and brewing and science stuff. <laughs> I would have loved to not have to know. That would have been great. <laughs> but... Do you know, did you guys run into any, many situations where you had to go borrow more money than you'd originally borrowed to yeah. fund operations? Yeah, I, I can't remember at what point. I think it was pretty early on because maybe the initial startup costs were higher than expected. But, oh, there's uh, a surprise. Yeah, <laughs> but we, I know we, so it wasn't necessarily borrowing. It was, yes, we were borrowing from him. He basically had to continue to fund it for a while. Yeah, okay. exactly. And so when when we would need that resurgence of, of capital, he he take the money out and, and put it into the company bank account and I we'd sign a piece of paper saying I owe you. I'm sure that helped in a, in a timely manner to get everything when he needed it but sure. at some point he had to stop enjoying doing that part of his job. Oh I'm sure say. yeah I'm sure you know I think for him he was he was trying to finance a, a dream of sorts like I said he was a hobbyist uh, at home and and thought that there would be a lot a lot higher margin and profitability than there actually was. I think that was kind of a, a step back for him. And and once he, I'm sure, and, and again, I don't want to speak for him, but I think once he saw that, oh, shit, we're not, we're not making money hand over fist. Like, he didn't quit until I quit. So it, yeah. it, 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 I'll give him credit. Yeah, he hung in there and tried to make it work. Yeah. Well, so that's uh, obviously flows right into my next question. Yeah, yeah. So who do you ultimately blame for the success or failure of the brewery? So, <laughs> um, that's such a subjective question. Um, that's one of the reasons I like asking it, because you can say whatever you think. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, who, to, who to blame? It has to fall on both of us, right? 
I mean, we were we were both the owners and operators of the brewery. It has to fall onto both of us. There were struggles um, personally that you know. So before brewing, I was a firefighter with the city of Houston uh, on you know the career path, which most firefighters are. They, you know, and I was I was good at it. And in the brewery, you know, we started getting some success and started getting some some likes. And uh, and I made the decision after talking with him uh, to resign from the fire department after eight years. And at which point they cash out your pension. They don't let you stay in the in the pension program for later on down the road. And it was almost a year to the day after I resigned from the fire department that we closed the doors. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so did you essentially take like a leave because you were open more than a year, right? A leave uh, from the fire department? No, no. So the the one of the greatest things about that job it's dangerous. It's I probably probably still see some cancerous effects down the road, but we only worked two days a week. We had okay. We had uh, two twenty-four hour shifts that we were responsible for each week, and I think it comes out to like nine days a month. I had twenty-one days a month that I could devote to the business and working in the fire department and having that you know running the business all the rest of the month it made sure that I had income and made sure that we were living in San Marcos and I was going back and forth to Houston on the days that I would work which wasn't as bad as everyone thinks it is it, it really wasn't I'd, you know, I'd wake up early in the morning get on the freeway and, and be at the station in two and a half hours it wasn't bad for me but yeah once I once I resigned we, we were closed in less than almost a year to blame for that, I, I don't know how to put it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a good partnership. We were from different backgrounds. We were from different. We had different work ethics. We didn't know each other that well. We were married to sisters. When I started dating my wife, her sister and my partner weren't even in state, and so I probably hung out with him physically less than twenty times. You know, when they would come down for holidays, when they would come down for this event or that event. We went up there once and stayed with them, you know, on a, on a Christmas vacation, but we didn't know each other. We, we just didn't understand how, how to work around each other and how to speak openly and honestly with each other. Quite frankly, you know, we didn't have that buddy, buddy bullshit type of relationship. Mm -hmm. And so that made down the road, that made hard conversations even harder. Uh, because we're family, and I don't think that we ever truly got to laying out an issue and speaking openly and honestly about it. It's, it's strange, you know, but they say don't ever work with family, and God damn it if I can't prove that, you know. <laughs> Partnerships are tough in general. Partnerships sure, are, yeah, for sure. And, and looking back on it, you know, even my best buddy growing up, would I open a business with him? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Because I know who he is and I know who I am. I love him, but I don't want to be, you know, when, when money's involved, it's, it's, it's really hard. And so that's something that I wrote down here that I want to make sure to emphasize is know who you're going into business with. Know that you guys work together. You know, one of the big things for me, I, I liked him. I, you know, like we weren't not friends. I just didn't understand different aspects about him and who he was. And so I think that when he invited me to be partners in the brewery, that he made that phone call, asked me to be a partner. I agreed. They moved back down to Texas. And we were, you know, we hung out for a year and a half, two years. 
before we actually opened the doors to the brewery for the first time. And I, I, to me personally, I think that the idea of owning a brewery, owning a business, something that would not have happened in any other form or fashion, it, it wasn't even on my timeline there, you know, but, but here's this opportunity. And I think that going through like that led the way instead of, instead of going, oh, you know, I don't really agree with him on this or what he's doing here. And it wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't necessarily beer related. It was personal stuff. It was stuff that, and I'm sure he had plenty to say about me too. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't discount his opinion in this because like I said, we just, we just weren't compatible in that, in that aspect. So you know, if this podcast is to stress any, if it stresses what not to do, uh, you know, I'd say just make quadruple damn sure that you guys would lay down your, your life for each other, you know, more or less. Uh, I hate to use, I'm a, I'm a military veteran too, so I hate to use that <laughs> whole like band of brothers thing. But, but really in business, it's, you better make sure that he'll take a bullet for you and you do the same for him because it's, it gets tight, it gets hairy. There's good times, there's bad times. If you guys aren't on the same page, you're fucked. <laughs> well, it helps in some cases to have some sort of a kind of complementary skill set where he can do things you can't do and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at first, that, that's, you know, we, we focused a lot on that. He had a, he had a science background, too. Um, and so I, I leaned heavy on that. You know, I had, to put it in short terms, I was blue collar. He, he came up white collar. So I thought this will be perfect. I can just sweat equity my way through this thing. And just in the long run, that's just not how it works, you know. But yes, you can play off each other. But again, at the end of the day, you gotta you gotta go into battle. So for you, would you say that the the partnership was the biggest challenge? Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of the day, how did that dissolution work? So when you guys had conversations, obviously at some point, and you got closer and closer to how that was leaving. And I guess one of my ultimate questions here is like, how did you go through that process? And then if the partnership was the problem, why did neither of you stay? Would be another follow-up to that. Not that you couldn't have, you had to change the name to either Altmeyer or Lewis. But. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, once, once we started on the decline and it was, it was, it was drawn out. It wasn't, you know, like I said, I, uh, I, I, I quit my job at the fire department and uh, went full-time brewery. And, and anyone in the brewing industry knows that there's ups and downs. There's peaks, mm -hmm. uh, peak seasons for beers. You know, you got to, and, and in our experience, we noticed that uh, fall and winter, fall, the beer sales would start to drop. And in the winter, not as many people were going to the bars, not as people were, you know, going to restaurants, stuff like that. Beer sales slowed down. And I think that's when we, we hit that, that downward and, the claws came out a little bit in, in some senses, you know, I, I raised concerns to him, you know, saying I'm doing all of the sales. Why don't, why don't you have any sales accounts? You know, his, his response was that I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're here for. <laughs> the, yeah, I don't, I don't like doing that. I don't want to do that. He wanted to be a brewer. That's what he wanted to do. <clears throat> I liked brewing. I wanted to do it too, but, but, you know, in the end of the day, you can't just do one thing. Uh, I think one of the things that he would change is that obviously he wouldn't make me a partner with him, but he would have hired all that stuff out. So once we closed the doors, he took the gear that he rightfully bought and moved it to another side of town and is now running 
or not, I don't know what his position is, but he, my gear is still in use at another brewery that he's part of. I mean, I say my gear, but you know what I mean. 49% yours. <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> I signed it all the way. I, I, at, at the end of it, I was, I, I couldn't, I, I didn't want to be associated anymore. And we didn't make enough money for me to argue with trying to take piece of it. Sure. Um, and so... Was some of that because it was family as well? Uh, yeah, that was part of that. Um, the biggest thing for me, I, I didn't want my wife to not want to talk to her sister anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the hardest part. His and I relationship fell apart. Fine. You know, I don't, I've got friends. I, but the sisters, I, I couldn't bear the idea of this being the reason they don't you know you hear about those families that don't talk to each other anymore i didn't want that because they've always had a real close-knit family and if if i or he were responsible for tearing that family apart uh, that that would have been a bigger tragedy than losing a brewery sure and so i at the end of the day i i I signed away my 49 percent back to him so that he could take the gear that he bought and Use it somewhere else, and that's fine. The only thing I wanted was was the metal that I won. <laughs> and I've got it in my garage right now. But did it do work? Is our Thanksgiving back to normal, or we are we're friendly at family gatherings? Yeah, we're, we're I'm not screaming across the the parking lot at him, calling him an asshole or anything, and he's not doing it to me. And oh, so it's not a normal family gathering then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, only once the beer comes out. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, it, we were friends, more friends before, but now we're just friendly, um, which is okay. You know, time heals all wounds, so we'll, we'll see what the next 10 years brings. And yeah, I don't know what to say uh, about that. Don't go into business with family, ultimately. Stay the fuck away, you know. If your brother wants to open a car wash with you, tell him no. <laughs> Find somebody you hate to be a partner. <laughs> Find some, yeah, maybe, maybe. To, Somebody that'll take, because, you know, I, I am an asshole. I am an asshole at work. I mean, not so much right now with Brewery Direct. I, I you know, I, I'm, I try to be more of a problem solver now in what I'm doing. But I come from a military background. I come from a fire department background. And for the last three and a half years, I was in the construction world. I know all the words, and I know how to use them properly to make you feel like a piece of shit. And I will raise my voice. But I can't do that when it's family family related you know right uh so it's it's what it is it's it's fun (laughs) (laughs) well do you remember what that moment was like when you walked out of the building for the last time i don't um ptsd (laughs) well maybe i don't i don't remember uh because i had to go get another job before we closed the business and i Mm. thought since I was doing most of the outside, I was doing all of the outside sales, and we had actually, for about eight or maybe a year, eight months to a year, uh, we had hired a kid. Um, we had hired a kid to help out on brew days, hired a kid, you know, the same kid to make keg deliveries and clean lines. So that took some of the responsibility off me, and it took some of the responsibility off him. He wasn't standing up on the brew house by himself anymore and I wasn't having to go make a sale, turn around, go back to the brewery, grab a keg, go deliver the keg, try to make three more sales and then go back out, back and forth, back and forth. You know, working off of the, again, the old model, this kid came in, he volunteered. His name's Will Nelson. You know, we... we Still around, right? He's somewhere around here. 
Yeah, he worked at Aqua Brew for a while. Yeah, um, that what he did. But he was working at Aqua Brew. He worked at. Uh, he was in the tap room at Real Ale, and I think doing some on the floor down there. But but all volunteer status, I think. Mm. But he came in and volunteered. He wanted to help out, and 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 coming. I I volunteered at St. Arnold's when I was in Houston. Altmeyer volunteered somewhere at another brewery somewhere when he was in college, and that's kind of how we came into brewing, and that's what will wanted to do he came out and he wanted to volunteer you know i think we had him mopping floors and cleaning toilets for a little while and <laughs> and then eventually hired him to help ease both of our our uh, struggles so so leaving the building for the last time i don't remember because i was still working in and out of the building i was doing the construction job and still making phone calls to try to sell my beer to different bars and restaurants um that's a lot it's a lot yeah yeah, yeah. it was and you know, at the end of it, I think I wrote Altmeyer an email or something saying that I, this is not sustainable for me. I can't do this. I don't know where to go from here, but I can't do this anymore. It's I have to make money to support my family, and I think that means that I have to put my dream away, you know, for now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think when I went to go get that job, it was um, I still had it in the back of my mind that I could, you know, make some money doing construction for a little bit, and then the brewery would rebound and I could go back to doing that and I even you know my (laughs) my uh employer who was my sister's husband (laughs) in construction so apparently I don't learn lessons very well um but I was his employee you know I wasn't his partner um Uh, how not to do construction is a different podcast (laughs) I'm gonna write that book next week all right um no he was great he was great and he uh I don't regret doing the construction. I don't want to do the construction anymore. I don't regret it. It, it was a lot, a lot of learning. I could build you a house now, yeah, <laughs> if you want. But he knew, you know, he knew that if the brewery was to rebound, that he wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't. He, and he told me, he said, just finish whatever. If if this comes back around, just finish your project, and then you know, good luck. Hmm. That's um, cool. So he was very understanding. Yeah, but it, it like I said, I, I ended up sending that email that said, I, I just can't do this anymore, and I don't know what to do about it. Um, and so then he decided basically if you weren't going to be there that Altmeyer would close as well yeah it seems I, like it would have been more expensive to move the equipment and start over if he knew he was going to do something again well wouldn't it have and I, I don't know all the details on that I okay. don't know how it all broke down but uh, my understanding is that the company he's that has all of our old equipment right now he's partial owner I mm-hmm. believe I believe I don't know and so now instead of uh, just a him owning the whole thing or whatever the case may be risk is spread around a little bit yeah exactly that's exactly right and you know i don't think he wanted to keep my name on on the brand anymore and i don't altmeyer brewing just doesn't sound quite quite the same (laughs) (laughs) no doesn't quite have that no all right so obviously you had a lot of uh, emotions around the the whole journey and it's been a long one there's some interesting things in there um but do you have any regrets So when I, you know, that's past three years. That's a lot of, you know, what do I regret? Um, kind of wish I had stayed with the fire department because it was sustainable for me to work two days a week there and then come back. And there were ways, there were even ways around, you know, working both those days, you know. Um, I wish I would have stayed there and, and stayed in the, you know, pension program. And, and that's the other thing that, again, I, I don't learn lessons very well. You know, when I got out of the military, it was, 
I didn't think it would be nearly as hard as it was. Um, I thought my contract's up. I'm going home. I'm going to start my new life. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, you know, I wanted to go to school. So that's what I, I focused on getting out and going to school. I didn't think about how hard it was for me to leave all of my friends. You know, I was active duty for five years um, total. And I made some of the best friends, you know, guys I still talk to, guys that when they're in town here, they'll call me, or if I go somewhere, I'll call them. So leaving the fire department, I didn't think about, you know, I had a one-track mind. I was thinking, I'm going to make this brewery the best thing it's ever been, and we're going to be the next Anheuser-Busch, I don't know. But I left behind nine other guys on my crew, and then 39 other guys at my station that I had relationships with that that were awesome salt of the you know people that I would go into business with that kind of mm. thing you know what I sure. mean uh, and I, I left them all behind there and that that's a big regret for me um, I miss my friends you know <laughs> uh, and, and the, the financial security that was involved in that being a fireman is daunting at times but it's easy the rest of the time yeah right <laughs> There's a, you know, you, if you learn how to cook in your fire station, you can write your own ticket. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I regret that. I regret leaving the fire department. Do I regret going into business with him? No, I don't regret that. You know, I mean, either way, it was a hell of an opportunity. You learned yeah. a lot. Um, at the end of it, you came out relatively unscathed. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, and that's the other thing. For for anybody that wants to do this, I I've been given every opportunity in the world and when I was down somebody picked me up and and then I made my way back up the ladder and then you know and then now here's another another opportunity to be back in the brewing industry where I know that I have solid support behind me with Johnson Brothers Baking and with Brewery Direct they're 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 looking out for me if I don't succeed they don't succeed so I am overly lucky it's it's not fair so <laughs> if you're going to do something like this and go out on a limb and start your own brewery i'm not saying don't do it make sure you have a solid support system behind you that if the chips are down you you have somewhere to be you know if it, if it all falls through I, I mean i really can't stress how and and not even just in in jobs but in my family my my wife and my kids have been uh, the biggest support, you know, and and even when it was hard for her, because because I was partners with her sister's husband, <laughs> you know, she still had my back the whole way. All the mudslinging that that did occur, uh, she was there and she stuck by my side. And I mean, you can't you can't put a price tag on that. That's so. If you got nothing else out of the beer industry, you became closer with your wife. Did you get that one. <laughs> well, I gave, I definitely uh, put some gray hair on her head. That's for sure. <laughs> There was one point when we were, I knew that I had to go back to work. I saw our bank account and I suggested that we sell our house so that I could continue to do, to, to run the brewery. And that's when she put her foot down. Mm. <laughs> she said, fuck you. <laughs> we're not doing that shit. Uh, and, and rightfully so. That would, that would have been a disaster. But, but yeah. If they can't do anything else, they can be the voice of reason for us. <laughs> yeah. Thank God for wives. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, are there any mistakes that uh, you, you can think of that weren't on my list that I should have put? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about other things that, you know, 
if somebody called me today and said, you want to do it all over again, what would I do different? And, you know, first and foremost, I, I think if you're interested in me to the point that you're willing to invest to have me run a brewery, then just invest. Don't try to run it alongside me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you have a brewing background and you want to open a brewery with me, do it yourself. Do it yourself. If you have money and you think that there's money in brewing, give me your money. Let me give me a, you know two years and, and let me see what I can do for you. Mm-hmm. But but having to make decisions between two people or more, in some cases, uh, I think it, it just everyone's different, man. Everyone has a different opinion, and some are right and some are wrong. And that that would be number one. Finding a location would be number two. And I think that was another thing about our brewery was fifteen barrel production facility set up in a college town isn't and both of us fantasized that these college kids would (laughs) love to drink our beer and then when they moved to wherever they were moving to after college that they would call their local bar or restaurant and say you need to get this brewery up here because that's the best beer i've ever had i still i'm proud of our quality but that was a pipe dream yeah (laughs) these kids didn't give us shit they didn't care you know uh, it's college I remember college, you know. They're just trying to get drunk most of it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're trying to get drunk, get laid, and just have a good time. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't build in a college town again, unless you're, unless you're just pumping out two row in Cascade and selling it for three dollars uh, on pint nights or something like that. Got to have a gimmick for a college town. And it needs to be cheap, probably. To help yeah, too. yeah, exactly. So uh, that'd be a good one. You have to find a, find another location. I think what we were set up for would have been better served in. Uh, in Quite, quite frankly, I would have moved to San Antonio. I would have put it in San Antonio because yeah. that's, that's a very underserved market, I feel like. Um, and at that, at that time, in 2013, it was wildly underserved. I mean, Southerly was just getting built. There was free tail there, obviously. Uh, Alamo Beer, I think, was there. It, it, it would have it, open ground. It, it would have been a better place. Yeah, I've said that a few times that I think I may have picked the worst city in Texas to open a sour brewery. <laughs> But uh, similarly to yours, I had a, a kind of the same idea of we are, New Braunfels is kind of like the playground of Texas. So yeah. uh, that we've never had a weekend in this brewery that it has not been at least a crowd from Houston um, yeah. at one time. It's, it's all tourists <laughs> all the time. So they'll come in here, they'll love the beer, they'll go back to Houston and tell their bar to put it on draft. And that literally almost never happens. <laughs> we even distribute in Houston. Yeah, yeah. It's, you, you think one thing until you, you're proven otherwise. So. Yeah, well, and, and none of us could have, it seems like no one's really addressing that when we started, there were literally 25% as many breweries as there are today. Yeah. Um, like, I remember when we officially incorporated in 2011, I think there may have been 100 in the whole state. Um, now there's, what, four or 500? Yeah. Um, and I would never have done it. If, if the brewing industry were as crowded then as it is today, 0% chance that I would have done this. Um, so there's that too. Competition does make a difference. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens with, you know, everyone had to shift during the pandemic and, and go into package and fight for shelf space. We were talking about fighting for shelf space back then. I cannot even imagine what's going to happen now. I mean, there's going to be six aisles of hot shelf in, in these HEBs or liquor stores that are just untouched. It, you still see it. Like, there'll be uh, a retailer that'll post, like, oh, hey, new to Texas. I think there's there's at least three non-Texas brands that I've seen come into Texas in the last month. Um, 
stealing shelf space from the local guys. And yeah. granted, maybe some of their beer's better, maybe some of it's not, but no matter what, that definitely um, adds weight to the overall equation and mm-hmm. makes it that much harder to be profitable. So Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough coming up. I appreciate you taking the time, too, by the way, today. I, I think that, that you've, you've given a lot of people a lot to think about, and so <laughs> I'm glad that you were able to share the story. And, yeah. and obviously there was some emotion there, and, and so I'm glad that uh, you felt comfortable to be able to do that. So thank you. Mm-hmm. What um, what's give me one thing that you would want to leave to someone considering opening a brewery? Your your parting lines, man. It's uh, like I said, brewing is a hobby, uh, and and being passionate about beer is not enough. If you want to have a business, uh, and passion helps when you're making your beer. And that's what that's what I was passionate about. I was passionate about making good beer, making clean beer, um, and we did. We did just that, you know. Uh, but it's not enough. And and I know all the books say it, and I know <laughs> you know everyone tells you, but you just you got to really see it and believe it, and, and it's not enough. You know, you got to figure out. You got to be creative in in marketing and in business. Uh, uh, yeah. th- that'd be my my parting advice and i'm sure that's everyone's parting advice is <laughs> just liking beer isn't good enough <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well i think it's uh an, actually a very succinct summary of the whole thing at the end of the day so um, sure. get into it because you like beer stay into it because you understand how to run a business that's it oh again byron thank you for taking the time really appreciate it and uh, i think we've all learned a lot from your experiences <laughs> And look forward to seeing you again as you come in and sell us some grains. I appreciate that, Kelly. Thank you. All right, man. Thanks a lot. (laughs) Hey, guys. I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guests tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in paperback. And you'll see probably about another month there'll be an audio book. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audio book. But again, thanks for sticking around, and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, Peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. Media.